0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Daniel Firestein to the show. Daniel is the director of the Center for Genocide Studies at the National University, uh, and here I'm just going to say of the third of February. In Argentina, I could try to do the Spanish, but um, that might not be wise of me. In addition, he is the current president of the International Association of Genocide Studies. Today, we're going to talk to him about his book, Genocide as a Social, a Social Practice Reorganizing Society Under the Nazis and Argentina's Military Junta. And this is just a wonderful book. It's, it's intellectually rigorous. Uh, it's, it's a re-examination of what genocide means and how it has been practiced in the modern world. Daniel's a, a sociologist, uh, and he offers in this book a well-considered typology of genocides and, and a careful review of the literature on the subject. But it's more than an academic book, and maybe we'll get into this during the interview. It, it's it's an he He offers in this book a kind of impassioned analysis of what genocide meant and continues to mean in Germany, and particularly in Argentina. And it's an insightful book, full of important reflections on the impact and meaning of genocide. So I'm really looking forward to being able to talk uh, with Daniel about it today. And with that as an introduction, Daniel, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. So why don't we start just by asking you to talk to us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in the subject of um, of genocide and mass violence.
1: Yeah, my background is I'm, I have a B.A. in sociology and a Ph.D. also in, in social sciences, both by the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina, and uh, I would... I have to say that genocide studies is almost my whole life because I have started working on that uh, when I was very young, just when I was uh, studying at, at my BA. But uh, even I, I started working with the situation when I was a teenager during the last years of the dictatorship in, Argent- in Argentina uh, because I was part of the student movement and hmm. uh, in that moment the student movement was clandestine under the dictatorship and we were trying to work to recover democracy so due to my jewish background too so i started my work at the university in my ba trying to understand some things regarding the the representation and the, the way in which Nazism and the Nazi genocide was understood because uh, different questions were not very satisfying. I don't know if it is the correct word, but were not enough uh, clear to me. And I, I wanted to... To, to study the, the process and to understand more. And then some of my reflections on the Nazi genocide were used in Argentina in democracy when the process started with the possibility to to judge the the former perpetrators of the Argentine, what I used to call the Argentine genocide. So I changed my world through the analysis of Nazism, through the analysis of the Argentine situation and trying to understand both with common tools, even beyond the huge differences between both cases, trying to understand some structural elements of both situations.
0: So you build your book around a, a particular definition of genocide. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you define genocide and, and how your definition responds to the kind of strengths and weaknesses of, of other definitions?
1: Yeah, I, I I try to differentiate two different questions. I use two different concepts. One is genocide, and the other is genocidal social practice,
0: yeah. which is
1: really my own uh, concept. I I. In the book and in my whole research, I, I did a long uh, analysis of the ways in which the genocide can- concept was created legally and the problems of the genocide convention and uh, even the, the legal problems of the genocide concept uh, In in different ways, in in legal doctrine, there is no possibility to create a concept which includes some people but not other people. Mm -hmm. And the second problem is the the methodology in which the, the political groups were excluded from the convention was very... Problematic because it was voted twice, and in the first votation it was approved, but then it was voted at night, trying to reverse the first vote. So even <laughs> procedurally it was quite arguable. But so legally, I use the concept of genocide, but trying to understand that genocide should mean the the intent of annihilation of any kind of group. Because it's the only way to understand a legal concept, to understand mm-hmm. that the, the, the human life has no differences. No one would accept that homicide is the killing of some people, but not other kind of people. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the same with the groups, that any group has the same right to, to life than any other group so it is not acceptable the exclusion of any group from the definition that's the legal viewpoint but then I used to work with the concept of genocidal social practices with this which is most more sociological because I'm finally I'm a sociologist and not lawyer. <laughs> And I'm more interested not in the... I'm interested also in the legal and the juridical nuances because I'm really involved in the trials. I wouldn't say not only in Argentina, in the whole region, in Latin America, and even uh, I'm in, in touch with the trials now in Bangladesh and, and in Cambodia huh. too. Uh, but... Beyond the the juridical nuances, I'm more interested in in the sociological understanding Mm -hmm. of the genocidal social practice. So trying to understand genocide as, as a technology of power that's the idea of genocide as a social practice, trying to understand the genocide, the explanation of genocide is not the evil of the world. It's not that the inhuman people that decide to hate people and to kill people, but it is a, a very quite effective technology of power to, to transform identities through terror. And what I found... After uh, decades of work, is that finally the, the author, the, the author of the concept of genocide, the, the person who created the concept, the, the, the jurist Rafael Lemkin, the Polish Jew, uh-huh. a lawyer from, from the government of Poland, then exiled in the United States, finally he understood genocide in this sociological way because when he tried to summarize what genocide means he said that it means means the the destruction of the national identity of the oppressed people and the construction of a new identity which is the identity of the oppressor so that's Mm -hmm. The, the core element of the definition of genocide in Lemkin. And that's my sociological understanding mm-hmm. of the genocidal social practice, which is a way to transform the identity of the people through terror. So that is understanding that the killings are not the objective of the genocide, mm-hmm. but the mean, the tool. Mm-hmm. And that's a fundamental difference, that genocide focuses the, the, the Intent of genocide is transform the identity of the survival, the survivors of the society after genocide. And that the killings are the the tool to this transformation, to terrorize the whole society.
0: And and just as an aside for for listeners who may be new to the program, um, several months, maybe a year ago, we had... uh, both Steve Jacobs and Donnelly Fries on the program to talk about uh, the un well now published uh, but originally unpublished autobiography that Lumpkin wrote, yeah. uh, and then some of his writings about genocide. So you can go back to the website and you can uh, listen to them talk about at more greater length Lumpkin's ideas. Uh, you did say you were sociolo- sociologist, and one of the striking things about the gen- field of genocide studies is how interdisciplinary it has become, or it is. What what kind of how do you see the distinctive contributions of sociology to that study?
1: I guess that the main and distinctive contribution is trying to understand the particularly the the, the social relations created through genocide, hmm. the, the, the 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 ways the different ways in which the the killings and the terror affects. The different populations. I think that's really fundamental. It is not only sociology; also anthropology worked very much on, on the field in that direction. But I would say that most of the of the members, even of the first generation of genocide studies, were sociologists, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Chalk or Kurt Jonathan or I'm thinking in, in different names. Sure. Some of them were historians, others were uh, uh, social psychologists like Israel Charny, but uh, uh, some some of them came from philosophy, even Donna Ali-Fries, but most of mm-hmm. them came from, from sociology and anthropology, trying to understand this uh, question of social relations, we, which are really invisible for lawyers, because the, the law used to be too... Uh, individualistic, it is mm-hmm. some atomistic view of the social relation which is really old but continues in hegemonic in the law so uh-huh. the lawyers used to to see, used to analyze society as individual persons that this perspective which in sociology is the contractualist perspective, I would say Jean-Jacques Rousseau or, or even Locke it is mm-hmm. too old now, and huh. there are different ways to understand And societies are not the this, this sum of different individuals, but it is a particular mm-hmm. process which, which is absolutely more complex. And I think mm-hmm. that's the main contribution of anthropology and sociology to understanding of genocidal social practices, practically to understand that, the question is not the hate. The question is not the evil. The question is the way in which social relations evolved. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things you do in this book is is, is to construct a typology of genocide. And, and so you divide genocides into mm-hmm. foundational genocides and colonial genocides and, and post-colonial genocides and then reorganizing genocides. Can you talk a little bit about that typology and what? How you hope it serves the study of the field?
1: Yeah, my main work is in the last category, which is reorganizing mm-hmm. genocide. But mm-hmm. uh, what I try to, what I have tried to, to point out is that the the different uses of killings have different objectives and had different objectives in history. So that the the ancient extermination processes that we sh- ...could call them genocides or not, it depends, and I, I don't have a, a strong position on that, but even if we call them genocides, the, a totally different use of the killings, because it's mainly to take territories and resources, and, and in that situation, yes, the killing, it, it is, it is a, a tool, it is a mean, but it is a mean not to transform society, not to anyone, not to anything else than to take resources... And that's the oldest way of killing people. But what I'm trying to to point out with these four different types is that in modernity there were other ways to use killings Mm -hmm. beyond to take resources. And that's the constituent genocide, which is the use the killings to define the, the, the society that will be construed. The, the new society, the new modern mm-hmm. state. And I could say that almost any modern state uh, grew up through genocide. So the origin mm-hmm. of the state, clearly in our two cases, you are in the States. In the yes. States. So uh-huh. clearly in the United States and in Argentina, mm-hmm. the state was created through a first genocide Particularly of the Aboriginal, the Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. that weren't included in the new idea of the nation. Mm-hmm. So then you have the most, I would say, the, the 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 oldest way, the more connected way with the with the ancient genocide, which is the colonial one, in in which it is clear that that the objective is to take the land and to take resources and to uh, discipline the people to guarantee this kind of domination. Then, through Barbara Harf, I, I have included her idea of post-colonial genocide. In, in the beginning, I had these three categories, constituting colonial, and reorganizing. But then, when I have read Barbara Harf's work and her analysis of post-colonial genocide, I... I realize that there is really a third type which mm-hmm. is the use of the killing trying to to avoid the possibility of independence. This idea of the counterinsurgency wars was clearly a new way of using killings trying to to avoid independence and the process of decolonization. Mm-hmm. The and then I'm really focused my whole work is focused on the fourth type which is the type I have created, because there is work on the other types, which is what I have called reorganizer genocide. And it is the use of the killing to transform the identities and the social relations inside an existing nation-state. So, And that's the idea that one of the main hypotheses of the book is that Nazism was one of the first projects of reorganizing genocide, The idea was first to reorganize Germany, and it is somehow, I would say, not invisible, but really uh, underestimated in the analysis of Nazism, the process during the 30s, and the transformation Mm -hmm. of of Germany through terror in the concentration camps. there, There are works on that, but it is not the most known works on Nazism. And then the laboratory of Nazism that was discovering and realizing different ways of using the killing was, uh, was really, uh, was quite, was too effective to mm. create different modifications of behavior and social relations, so either the Soviet Union and the U.S., through the CIA, used these new new laboratories, these new understandings from Nazism to apply these ways of of changing social relations through terror in different countries during the Cold War. And there is a very uh, journalistic but particularly brilliant work uh, by Naomi Klein, The Shock Doctrine, Huh. which is particularly insight, I, I would say insightful, it's okay in English, mm-hmm. but it is uh, mm-hmm. particularly interesting in the ways in which she tried to understand this, uh, this new uh, understandings of violence, particularly through the works of the CIA during the end of the 50s, mm-hmm. and then the possibility to use this transformation of social relations in the whole conflicts of the Cold War, particularly in Latin America.
0: So so why Nazi Germany and Argentina as your two case studies?
1: Yes, I have explained in the beginning that I have started with Germany mainly uh-huh. because of my Jewish background and because uh-huh. of my need to understand some things regarding Nazism that weren't enough clear to me. Some answers, some common answers to Nazism that weren't weren't uh, enough uh, explicative, enough. Uh, uh-huh. uh, yeah, clear to me. So that that's the beginning. But then uh, I needed to, to understand also my my current situation, my current life situation in my country. And I have to say that my decision to to focus on on Argentina was more uh, acclaimed by the human rights organizations and different uh, sectors of the society that as as the trials started to use my own works, trying to understand the process. So the idea was, okay, but Nazism is something different. We need to understand our situation here. So it was a kind of, of claim. And, and I'm convinced that the, the, the scholarly work should be useful for the people, particularly in, in our countries, uh, the universities are public. So, you are paid by the whole society to research. Uh And the idea is that it is not quite common, but my idea is that the research should be useful for the society. Mm -hmm. So, the situation was that we were in the moment of of the trials, then the, the impunity laws, then the fight against the impunity laws, trying to find different ways to reopen in the trials, and... In this situation, the understanding of what happened in, in Argentina was particularly important. So I have changed my work trying to, mm-hmm. to put in, in connection these two facts that, that both were particularly important in my life. Because on one hand, my uh, my Jewish origin. On the other hand, my Argentinian current identity.
0: Mm. And you you make a so you so you brought up this this idea that that there are people who are saying no you can't really compare Argentina and Germany the the Nazis in Germany as as equivalent situations they're different uh, a, a significant chunk of your book is spent explaining why you think that's not so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so can you kind of talk about that? Why do you believe these are equivalent situations?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say they are equivalent. I, I would okay. say they are mm-hmm. comparable situations. It's ah, clear uh-huh. that the situations are not similar, but no historical situation is similar. Any historical situation is, is different. And the idea of a comparative work is trying to understand the commonalities and the differences. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I... I, I I talk about some differences, some very important differences between both processes, but what is important to me is some commonalities that even in these two very different historical processes with different, wide different magnitudes and in different parts of the world and with different cultures and the different characteristics and whatever, the structure of the use of terror to produce some changes an identity that the structural element of the reorganizer genocide, and I can find it in both situations. And the structure of the concentration camps and the ways in which the concentration camps were used to produce terror in the whole society is the same. So then we have the extermination camps in Nazism, and I, I... very clearly in the book that it is something very particular of Nazism so in no other experience there were extermination camps like uh, Treblinka or Belzec or I wouldn't say Auschwitz because Auschwitz was three different camps but particularly mm-hmm. Treblinka, Belzec and even Majdanek so particularly places particularly designed only for extermination and for massive extermination of people. So that's a clear uh, element that it is only present in Nazism. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, Nazism is much more than the extermination camps. And the extermination camps were possible because of the previous process of transformation of the identity in Germany. And that was the Reorganizer genocide in Germany during the 30s, and with the use of the concentration camps, and with a number of victims quite similar in 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 proportionality mm-hmm. to the Argentine experience, which is around one in thousand. That's the current mm-hmm. uh, the current uh, I would say the the number of people victimized in genocide trying to to terrorize the societies is around is in, in many experiences you can find that it is around one in one oh. thousand. That that's the the because I guess that the the idea is a number in which it is possible that any member of the society is touched. So mm. any member of the society should know at least One victim through the relatives or friends or work, uh, uh, or through work or through any other relation.
0: Well, let's turn to Argentina. And and it's unfortunate but true, I think, that what happened in Argentina is perhaps less well known uh, in other parts of the world than some of the other case studies genocide scholars often address. So, so could you just briefly kind of summarize what happens in Argentina during the period you deal with in the book?
1: Yeah, it is a very interesting question because, for example, in the English-speaking world, uh-huh. you use the people who work with Argentina use the term dirty war,
0: uh-huh.
1: which in Spanish it, it would be guerra sucia, yeah, dirty war. But what is unbelievable is that dirty war is a term only used by the perpetrators. So is if imagine that analyzing Nazism, you are you were using only final solution of the huge <laughs> question. So that you are assuming the, the way in which the perpetrators used to see the situation. Mm-hmm. So what happened in Argentina is my explanation it is long. I will try to summarize because I, I could speak. <laughs> Take two your answers. time. We've got no, time. in Argentina, but trying trying to summarize. Uh, I would say that uh, there was a long process trying to to destroy the, the changes in social relations created by the Peronist movement, The movement of Peronism. The Peronism were in, in government from 45, 1945 to 1955. And through a coup d'etat, the Peronism was uh, defeated, but the changes in the social relations weren't pro- possible to transform for two decades. So there were different projects trying to transform the Argentine society, but this uh, this social economic, but mainly social transformations were very difficult to reverse unless if you are in a situation in which you could apply the terror. So there were different dictatorships and the violence was growing and growing, but the situation didn't change until the last dictatorship. So in in this situation, there was another element that, as democracy was definitely uh, destroyed, I would say, in 1966. Around the end of 1960s, there were different left-wing armed organizations trying to uh, either to recover democracy, either trying to recover Peronism, either trying to create a revolution the socialist revolution in Argentina. So the situation was more and more violent and during the beginning of the 70s, there was the decision, and it is very clear in many military documents, that the, the dominant sectors in the country took the decision to, to terrorize the whole society through a process of annihilation. And that's what I have called the Argentine genocide that started some months before of the coup d'état, even during the last part of the government of the last wife of Perón, through some uh, right-wing groups and squads, and then more organized through the last dictatorship with the coup d'état in March 1976. So to give you a Uh, A quick picture, it was around, uh, it is difficult because not all the denounces were were done, but the the estimation is about 20,000 to 30,000 victims coming from different sectors of the society, uh, mainly uh, from the workers' organizations and student movement also of course uh, all of the members of the left wing armed uh, organizations and uh, a net of around 600 uh, concentration camps and the systematic use of sexual assault and violation and torture and it is really not known the real number of people interned in concentration camps, the, the survivors. But I would say probably the same number of the of the people killed. So if we, we if we have around twenty to thirty thousand of people killed, probably we have the same number of people that uh, were in concentration camps. Sometimes most of them. Uh, uh, really a a few times possibly one day or two days so that's why not all the denounces were done not only because of terror sometimes beyond the terror because it was there were different situations and sometimes there was no need even to explain what happened in other cases people were interned in concentration camps for years but there were of course different situations and different uses of terror
0: so, and I'm I'm kind of following along with the model of genocides that that you propose in the book, and and you talk about the way in which um, the perpetrators identify um, a victim or a kind of victim or a class of victims, and you talk about the figure of the subversive criminal. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the subversive criminal? That's interesting. Or because- what was supposed to be the subversive yeah, they, criminal? They- the main element of,
1: of an effective genocide is to have a definition of the victims as more ambiguous as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's... The, the, the Jew in Nazism, which was not the only enemy and not the only victim, but the most important, was somehow ambiguous, but not too ambiguous. Mm-hmm. The subversive criminal is particularly ambiguous because it is something which is not clear at all and it depends only on the minds of the perpetrators. So the subversive criminal is the person who the perpetrator defines as a subversive criminal. But to hmm. to make it more even more ambiguous, I use in the book this statement by the former... Uh, the former governor of the province of Buenos Aires, who identify Iberico Sanjan, who even, identify five types of people that will be persecuted and killed, and uh, taking account the, the kind of, of ambiguity, because the first one is the subversive criminal, mm. but the second is their accomplices. The third is the sympathizers, the fourth group is the indifferent. So even the people who are indifferent to subversive criminality will be persecuted and killed. And the fifth group is the timid. Huh. So that's very. This statement is particularly useful to understand the way in which terror tried to influence the whole society. That no one is. Uh, no one person in the whole society is secure. So everyone could be included in this idea of criminality, in this idea of subversion. Mm. So the main objective of this ambiguity is to create in the society the need for betrayal. Mm. And that's the main tool for discipline. The idea that's, to, to, bro- to break any possibility of cooperation, of horizontal cooperation. Because anyone is afraid of their neighbors, of their relatives, of their, uh, their people in the work or whatever, because anyone could be the one who will betray you. Mm. And the only way to demonstrate to the perpetrators that you are not a subversive criminal is to betray who is the real subversive. So that's the process of the installation of terror in society and the transformation of identities. And it is not needed that the whole society betray. The the process is enough effective if the whole society believes that anyone could be a uh, a betrayal. Mm -hmm betrayer, yeah, because that's enough because that's enough to break any possibility of cooperation
0: so so who are the perpetrators, <laughs> and how are they organized
1: that's interesting because the the perpetrators were mainly the the security forces, so the armies and the police uh, but that's interesting, because the, they were, they were the, the workers of the genocide, but the real ideology of the genocide came from the mainly from the, the owners of the companies and the the economic power in the country. Mm-hmm. That, but that's interesting because when the trials were reopened. Around two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven, most of the militaries started to to break the silence to say, mm. Okay, we are we are being judged now, but the people who asked us <laughs> to go and kill people, they are not being judged. And and the process was really interesting because they they keep a lot of power by now and, and the militaries don't so it, it was a very interesting process in the last 2-3 years in Argentina trying to start trials against the real uh, the real ideology of the genocide but it is quite difficult because it is quite difficult to prove the participation in some cases it is easier for example in the case of, of uh, the company Ford in four there was a concentration camp inside the company. So and the workers of four that were uh, too uh, too strong defending their rights. They they were interned directly in the concentration camp in four. So in that case, even in that case, it is difficult because it is difficult to to have, for example, the extradition of the four officers now living in the U.S. But in that case, or in the Mercedes-Benz case regarding a, a German company, that's easier because the involvement was so clear. <laughs> but in most of the cases, it's much more difficult because it, it was more subtle. So to prove the involvement is quite difficult, but... That's interesting, trying to understand who were the, the perpetrators. And it was a chain of, of relations in mm-hmm. which the the militaries and the security forces uh, were the workers, but they were not the ideologues of the genocide.
0: So you talk about the logic of the concentration camp. Uh, and you referred to the concentration camp earlier and, and the fact that they existed in both places. Yeah, mm-hmm what is the logic of the concentration camp?
1: I would say that the concentration camp has two different logics. One mm-hmm. is the logic for the people who are interned in the concentration camp, and the other is the logic for the whole society. Mm-hmm. And what I have tried to point out in, in the book is that the first question was more analyzed, And I I analyzed two, but it was Mm -hmm. more analyzed. And the second question was not analyzed at all, which is the consequences of the concentration camp in the people who were not interned in concentration camps. So the concentration camps have these two different objectives. So for the people interned, the objective is to destroy absolutely their identity. So sometimes... Directly through killings, and in other cases through this kind of uh, of the use of different techniques of, of identity destruction, which is the 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 deleting of your name, the using of numbers, the 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 breaking of your relation with time and space, the the forcing the people to, to behave like like childs, or even sometimes like animals, or even the unpredictability of the situation. So different ways in which uh, the, the perpetrators are destroying your identity, trying to destroy any element which produces our identity, which is our relation with a name, with a history, with a time, with a space, with different elements. Uh, but in my opinion, the concentration camp was not so effective in destroying the identity of the people who were in town, sometimes because they just killed that people, and in other cases because it is more possible to, to confront with, with a terror you know, that to confront with an ter- unknown terror. So that's why, in my opinion, the main objective of the concentration camps is not the people inside of the concentration camp, but the people outside. The terror of the possibility of being interned in the the concentration camp and this unknown terror, because you know that something terrible is happening there, but you don't know exactly what. Mm-hmm. And that is quite effective in trying to, to transform your identity, in trying to, to break any kind of action you, you try to do, trying to modify your society, trying to create ties of, of cooperation or nets of cooperation among the people you know. The idea is to, to break any possibility of horizontal relation through that. Mm. And the concentration camp is quite effective in doing that because that's the idea of this institution which is uh, clandestine on one way, is not official, but anyone knows. So that's the idea. And it is not mm. clear. It is not in, in the newspapers, but it is. So <laughs> the idea is that there is a kind of rumor that the whole society know that something is happening there and it is quite terrible, but anyone can imagine uh, their most terrible nightmares probably are happening there. And uh, in my opinion, and it is not only my opinion, it is interesting because it was a conclusion of the survivors, of the association survivors of the Argentine concentration camps that uh, they were really interested in how the whole society who were not in the concentration camp lived during those years. I was the ways in which they huh. thought about the situation because the survivors said, well, we know how was our own understanding of the situation. Mm-hmm. But what about the people who were terrorists huh. but never suffered the terror? the real material terror of the concentration
0: camp. So one of the ways your your model of genocide is is distinctive is that it continues on after extermination. Um, And this connects with the discussion you have in your book about the way what happens in Argentina is remembered. So could you maybe talk to us a little bit about how how this period has been remembered historically and how the that memory has changed over time and how that's connected with this project to reconstruct identities?
1: Yeah, because if, if you agree with my main hypothesis that mm-hmm. genocide the, the killings are not the objective but the tool, the mean. Mm-hmm. So that's why I used to say, okay, so the extermination is not the last phase. It's not the last stage because you need a new one, which is the ways in which the society represents the extermination. So the terror is quite possible after the extermination, but it is another stage. Mm. It's not the same, it is another step. So Mm -hmm. it is quite possible, but you have to create this process. And what is particularly important of this last step is that the perpetrator can't manage this moment. So the perpetrators can do whatever they like until the moment of extermination, the process is in its own control. Hmm. So they can expect that the extermination will produce terror and will affect society through so this way. That's re- really quite possible. But it is a step in which there is no important ways to influence these processes, because the ways in which the societies represent the past is particularly complex. and usually it is after the extermination process. So sometimes the perpetrators are no more in power. So the main ways in which the terror influence identities, which I have called symbolic enactment mm-hmm. of the genocide, usually are not constructions by the perpetrators, but they are they were created by, by their own society. It is the logical ways in which you are trying to process and to work through the terror. And the problem is usually there is no way to work through the terror and the terror creates the consequences that were expected by the perpetrators. Hmm. But in my opinion, the Argentine process was very particular, was due to a lot of variables. It was not quite successful in this way of symbolic enactment through decades. And that's the explanation, in my view, that's why the trials have the strength that they have now. And it is, it is a, a very strange situation, which taking account that uh, by now, more than 600 perpetrators were condemned in Argentina oh. in a process that... It is clearly, it had clearly less victims than any other known process. The former Yugoslavia or Rwanda or even Nazism, we are talking of millions or hundreds of thousands of people. And then we have maybe 10 or 60 or 70 or 200 people condemned. So the case of Argentina is very particular and there is a lot of reasons. One is the way in which the perpetrator... The perpetrators uh, lost the power that was uh, in a process of the Falkland Malvinas War, and it was very particular because it was it was not a transition like the other cases in Latin America. It was not a, a long transition and negotiated transition, but after the defeat in the war, the militaries had to 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 move out of the power so democracy had more strength in comparison with other cases. Then the the very important role of the human rights organizations, trying to to challenge and challenge and challenge the ways in which the society used to represent the past, Uh and uh, trying to, to challenge this way of symbolic enactment, Uh, through different kind of actions, there were a lot of actions, even during the two decades of impunity, there were plenty of actions trying to open cases in different countries of the world through the Universal Jurisdiction for Human Rights, or trying to open cases in Argentina, trying to find the the nuances of the impunity laws and trying to, to include cases that were not covered by the impunity laws, and the most important by the younger people the the name and shame campaigns that were called in spanish escraches hmm. that were some kind of campaigns against the perpetrators that were pacific demonstrations but in their houses and where they they were going to restaurants or to dance clubs or whatever they were they they were trying to go trying to go there and to explain the people who these people are and why we don't like them being here and we don't like them being our neighbors and we don't like them taking it together with us and trying to put them outside of the places but always in a pacific way taking account that no perpetrator was killed or injured by the by the victims or by the human rights organizations were only trials. So different variables, different situations created a, a very particular way to to challenge these ways of symbolic enactment. And and it is a discussion that continues and it was changed during the years. So uh, in the beginning there was an understanding that, uh, well, the perpetrators were responsible, but there was a kind of, not a war, but a kind of conflict with the left-wing groups and that different groups should be tried and and should be judged. And there there were different ways of representing the past during the decades. And it was quite interesting how the society evolved trying to understand what happened in the country and trying to to challenge the terror, which is present, which is, even it is present now, but it, it was diminishing the consequences of terror through the years, yeah, through these different ways of
0: resistance. As I read the book, I got a sense that you felt like at least as you're defining genocide, that that this genocide was in part successful, that that a way of identifying yourself and thinking about your your role in society was closed off to Argentinians as a result of that. Am I right? Am I reading that right? A sense in which the the neoliberal kind of individualistic culture has triumphed and a more communal kind of identity has gone away. Is that, am I reading you right?
1: Yeah. What, what I have tried to to say is that there is a kind of, of intertwine between some economic tendencies and the uses of terror. And that even if, if not all of the neoliberal changes are a consequences of, genocide, of course, there is a need uh, that in societies in which the cooperation ties were too strong, there was a need to create terror to make possible these economic changes. So my understanding is that if you have a society in which the cooperation ties is are weak, so you don't need to terrorize the society to create some economic changes because that's possible. It is in the mind of the people. But if you, have, if you have a society, and it was the case in many Latin American societies, in which there is a strong net of cooperation between different parts of the population, the the dominant sectors of the society need to destroy this net of cooperation. And sometimes repression or persecution was enough, and in most of the cases, the terror was needed to destroy to destroy these ties, and that was the clear situation in many countries of the region. I would say also in all the Central American cases, because of different explanation. In the case of Argentina, was the history of Peronism. In the case of Central America. Or even Bolivia and other countries, it was the, the net of, of the indigenous movement identities and the cooperation as, as a fundamental part of the indigenous mentality. So, and it was necessary to destroy these nets of cooperation. And that's why even the numbers of people killed were were more important, clearly, more important than in the cases of the southern cone. So you have the the most terrible cases in Latin America is Guatemala Mm -hmm. or even El Salvador. Guatemala with more than 250,000 victims in a country which has a third of the population in Argentina. And in El Salvador with around seventy to 80,000 victims again in a country, in a very little country, with a very number of, of of the whole population, with a very little million, three, four, five million mm-hmm. inhabitants. So, in my view, the number of the victims it has to to do with the level of terror needed to destroy this cooperation mm-hmm. ties. So, if the cooperation had two or three decades or four decades, so you need some tens of thousands or thousands of people. To destroy these nets. But if you have nets of cooperation that have centuries, so you really need to to create a more more important distraction to, to transform these identities. So in my opinion that's one of the fundamental objectives of genocide and in my view is one of the main uh, contributions of the book, trying to to make clear the role of genocide in destroying the the, the social uh, relations of cooperation through terror. It's
0: it's it's a wonderful book. I, I learned an, an enormous amount reading it. Um, as long as you're here, let me turn you just a little bit to a different topic. You're the president of the International Association for Genocide Scholars, and some of our listeners will know what that is, but, but others won't. Can you say a little bit about what that organization is and, and what it hopes to achieve? Yeah,
1: the International Association of Genocide Scholars is the organization that, that put together All the people all over the world working on on genocide studies. And its origin is quite interesting because it was created in 1994. And it was a kind of reaction against the idea of what it was called the uniqueness of the Shoah or the Nazi genocide. And there were a lot of, of scholars, I, I would say the pioneers of the of the association, Israel Charney and Frank Chok and Barbara Harf and, and, and other people, even, even Steve Jacobs and uh or or well, there is a lot of people I, I have not in my mind now, but uh they were trying to, to work together, trying to understand genocide as a social process and trying to understand different cases of genocide and the importance of a comparative work, trying to understand these different processes. So they have created the association as a as a, as a possibility to exchange different views about the people all over the world. So in the beginning, in the first decade, it was mainly an, an Anglo-Saxon association. I would say people from the US, from Australia, from the UK, uh, some scholars from Israel, too, some Armenians, but not so much. Uh, in the beginning of the new century, a lot of scholars came from other parts of the world, so from the Eastern Europe, from other parts of Europe, from Latin America, and even from Asia. We have not so much scholars, really by now, coming from Africa or even from the Arabic world or the Chinese uh, Chinese uh, region, but we, we are trying to, to get more people from, because different views and different cultures enrich the association very much. So now we are in touch with the UN Advisor on Genocide Prevention, just trying to, to give them our views. Sometimes we are successful, sometimes we are not. And even not all of us agree, of course. And that's really interesting because we have different views in the association. And the, the most interesting point we organize conferences every two years in different parts of the world. And the most interesting element is just to confront different views. Mm on genocide studies to confront different perspectives uh, from different disciplines, because there are lawyers, sociologists, historians, political scientists, anthropologists, philosophers, psychologists, so different disciplines and different cultures. People coming from different experiences, which is quite interesting too, because the way in which uh, I can analyze the violence in the world from Latin America is quite different than the analysis in the U.S. or even in Europe. And people coming from Eastern Europe have a quite different view, and I'm convinced even uh, people coming from the Southeast Asia that they came have a different view. I'm really convinced that if we could uh, include people coming from the Arabic world or even yeah. from some uh, from the Chinese region, probably the perspectives would be also different, and that's mm-hmm. quite enriching for our association. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and I, I thank you very much. I, I always try and close these interviews with a couple of what I, what I think are simple questions, although maybe they're not. Um, okay. And the first one is just a, a, a chance for you to give suggestion for people who are, are interested in genocide or interested in Argentina or interested in both. What what book or movie or whatever you think is appropriate was really influential for you and you would recommend to people?
1: Yeah. I would recommend. Uh, it depends on what they are interested, but sure. I, just to say that uh, the the most popular uh, products are more effective. So I would say that regarding the the ways in which genocide affects identity, I would say that there is a, an outstanding comic, which is in my way the best work on Nazism, which is Mouse. Uh huh. By uh, Art Spiegelman, that's that's unbelievable the way in which uh, Spiegelman tried to understand the, the the transgenerational transmission of terror, yeah, the, mm-hmm. the, the the consequences in identity, and through a comic which is
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, very easy to read but quite uh, profound. It, it is really. Uh, it is really rich uh, as a product, so I, I would recommend clearly the comic mm-hmm. Mouse and trying to to understand the the consequences, the problems in memory, trying to 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 get the to put the past in the present and the problems. But I, I would recommend the film, which is Balts with Bashir. An Israeli Uh film, which is about the the massacres in Sabra and Shatila in 1982. But it is Mm -hmm. a a quite uh, interesting film about the question of memory and the Uh question of representation of of traumatic past in your life. So I, I would say it is quite interesting. Thinking about... Argentina, right? It is difficult. We have a lot of things, but no one is really uh, the most interesting. Yes, there is one, but it is difficult to get it outside the country. The name is Mm -hmm. Los Días de Junio. It is the the days of June Uh by Alberto Fisherman. It is a film done in the eighties, and it is again quite interesting to understand. The way in which terror affects our identities and our remembrance and our present. So it is really interesting, and it was done just two years after the the dictatorship. Huh. And it is not very known in the countries. It's a difficult film to get, but probably everything is on the web now. <laughs>
0: okay,
1: if, if someone like to to. To look for it, it is a a, a wonderful film. Very interesting. The
0: Days of June. So you've now finished
1: this book. What are you working on now? I'm working on a trilogy, uh, which the name of the trilogy is Working Through Genocide. And the idea is particularly to analyze... Uh, more theoretically, just not uh, with a comparison of historical cases, even if Argentina is my main case, but the idea is trying to create a a more comprehensive understanding of, of the working through genocide. So the first volume was published in Spanish with the name Memories and Representations and it is a work from the neurosciences, through the psychoanalysis, through philosophy, the ways in which The Traumatic Memory Works. And then the second volume is uh, Judgments, which is being published next month in Spanish. And it is about the the, the common element between the, the moral judgment and the trials, that in Spanish it is the same word. Judgment and Trial, it's on Quisios. Huh. It is the same work. <laughs> and the third volume that it is just uh, I'm working on it is on responsibilities. So, mm. the third element of the working through is to take responsibility for your own actions.
0: Well, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. Um... And congratulations on the new book pu- publication coming out. And I'm hoping that uh, your publisher will see fit to translate it into English. Sadly, I don't know Spanish, although I probably should. But but should there be a chance, I hope that you'll come back and talk about those on the show. Um, I hope so. And I want to say thank you very much and um, for your time. Okay, thank you. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Daniel Firestein about his new book titled... Genocide as Social Practice Reorganizing Society Under the Nazis and Argentina's Military Junta. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview Fatma Muge Gocek about her wonderful new book, Denial of Violence Ottoman Past, Turkish Presence, and Collective Violence Against the Armenians, 1789 2009. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.